0: Hello and welcome to the Turkish History Podcast, Episode 33, The Great Seljuk Empire, The Military. Before we begin, if you have been enjoying this podcast, I'd like to ask you to please subscribe, rate, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get this podcast. It would mean a lot to me and would help more people find the podcast. Thank you for listening. So last time, we discussed the state structures of the Great Seljuk Empire, the decentralized nature of the state, and the constant negotiation between the various centers of power and the webs of officials, emirs, bureaucrats, and so on. We ended by discussing how this decentralized structure meant that the state did not have a monopoly on violence, and how each of the centers of power would be capable of fielding troops in the field to enforce their respective claims and rights. In a sense, as a part of the constant negotiation over power that characterized the Seljuk Empire. And today, we will dive into the connected story of the Seljuk military, and discuss both how the Seljuks fought and how the army fit into the broader political system. Now at the beginning, the Seljuk army was not really an army. Remember that the Seljuks began as Turkish refugees fleeing into Khorasan. This was not a professional army in any sense of the word. It bore basically no relation at all to the professional Turkish slave armies of the Abbasids or the Samanids. Instead, this was a far older style of force, a traditional steppe nomad army of the type that had been found across the Eurasian steppe for centuries, the type of army that has been with us since the beginning of this podcast. I'm going to read again the quote from the Han-era Chinese classic, The Records of the Grand Historian, that was in the very first episode of this podcast, and in which a Han scholar describes the steppe soldier and the way of fighting. The little boys start out by learning how to ride sheep and shoot birds and rats with a bow and arrow, and when they get older they shoot foxes and hares, which are used for food. Thus all young men are able to use a bow and act as armed cavalry in time of war. It is their custom to herd their flocks in times of peace and make their living by hunting, but in times of crisis they take up arms and go plundering and marauding. This seems to be their nature. For long ranged weapons, they use bows and arrows, and swords and spears at close range. If the battle is going well for them, then they will advance, but if not, they will retreat, for they do not consider it to be a disgrace to run away. This was the type of army the Seljuks were in the beginning a horde of Turkish steppe warriors, moving along with their beasts and even with their families on campaign. And as we have discussed in prior episodes, this type of army was incredibly formidable. Indeed, the wild tribesmen of the Eurasian steppe, raised in the saddle, were basically the most formidable warriors in the world until the advent of gunpowder like a couple centuries ago. The steppe warriors were hardened by the steppe way of life and even teenagers were accomplished riders and archers. So formidable were the Turks at archery That some modern historians describe it as the key technological advantage in the Seljuk conquests. There were simply no equals to mounted steppe archers. And because they lived off the herds, they didn't have supply lines, they didn't depend on holding cities to fight, which as we saw in the narrative, made them capable of defeating even the professional and in many ways objectively better Ghaznavid army their only real limitation was essentially ecological. Can this land support our herds for the requisite period of time? And in the narrative, we saw this limitation come into play when Tukhul tried to keep them in Iraq for long periods of time, which the tribes detested. All of this, of course, gave the Turks a fearsome reputation, one that had been around for centuries by this point. The Abbasids and even the Umayyads had of course seen the Turks as the super-soldiers of the day. And as we discussed, this had been why the slave army built by the Abbasid Caliphs had consisted overwhelmingly of Turkish mameluks. This reputation not only continued, but of course grew during the Seljuk period. A work entitled On the Superiority of the Turks was written during the reign of Tukhul, in which the author relates in part, Let us start by mentioning their courage. God created them in the likeness of lions, with broad faces, snub noses, well-rounded limbs and an irascible disposition. They are accustomed to deserts and steppes, are patient in the face of want and difficulty, and they consider a carefree life to consist of raiding." Incidentally, I'd note that the description of broad faces and snub noses seems to indicate that the Turks looked physically Central Asian or East Asian to the Middle Eastern author. But after Tukrul's conquest of Baghdad, the composition of this steppe army began to change. While the traditional Turkish nomads continued to exist, they began to be increasingly supplemented by Turkish Mameluke slave soldiers. This was part of Tukrul's desire to both rule in the established Perso-Islamic tradition and to find a counterweight to the power of the tribes, with whom his regime was in increasing conflict. Now, this process seems to have begun slowly during Tukhrol's reign. At first, mentions of Turkish Mamluk slave soldiers in the Seljuk armies are relatively rare and the numbers relatively low. For example, Ibn al-Athir says that Tukhrol owned 2,000 Mamluks. But during the reign of Al-Parslan and Malik Shah, the number of Mamluks serving in the Seljuk armies dramatically expanded. Sipt ibn al-Jawzi says that the Mamluk contingent at Manzikert was 4,000 strong, so double the total number of slave soldiers owned by Tughril. And Nizam ul-Mulk claims in his Siyaset name that Melik Shah's army numbered 400,000 strong, a large proportion of which were Mamluks. And while this is likely an exaggeration, it's still a clear indication of how rapidly the Seljuk slave army grew during the reigns of Al-Parslan and Malik Shah. And we should remember from the narrative that relations between the court and the tribes were often quite rocky during their reigns. This was probably both a cause and an effect of the state's increasing reliance on the slave soldiers. Now, most of these Mamluk slave soldiers were, of course, Turkish. As during the Abbasid period, they were enslaved in Central Asia before being sold into bondage into the Islamic armies. There's even a fantastic surviving source from the Seljuk period that contains essentially a buyer's guide for Turkish slave soldiers. And I just love this source because it is such an interesting thing to have survived and provides such a fascinating look at both the slave markets that drove recruitment into the Seljuk armies and the thoughts of the civilized world about the Turks in general so I'm going to quote from it at length now, even though it is quite long. So chapter 23 of the famous name provides in part, The mark of a slave suited for arms-bearing is that his hair is thick, his body tall and erect, his builds powerful, his flesh hard, his bones thick, his skin coarse and his limbs straight, his joints being firm. The tendons should be tight, and the sinews and blood vessels prominent and visible upon the body. Shoulders must be broad, the chest deep, the neck thick, and the head round. Also for preference, his head should be bald. The belly should be concave, the buttocks drawn in, and the legs and walking well extended, and the eyes should be black. The author continues to note, You must understand that the Turks are not all of one race. And each has its own nature and essential character. Among the most ill-tempered are the Okus and the Kipchaks. The best-tempered and the most willing are the Khotans, the Chalukis, and the Tibetans. The boldest and most courageous are the Turgai, the most inured to hardship and the most active are the Tatars and the Yagma. Whereas the laziest of all are the Chagul. Without any doubt, what is fine in the Turks is present in a superlative degree, but also what is ugly in them. Their faults in general are that they are blunt-witted, ignorant, boastful, turbulent, discontented, and without a sense of justice. Without any excuse, they will create trouble and utter foul language, and at night they are poor-hearted. Their merit is that they are also brave, free from pretense, open in enmity, and zealous in any task allotted to them. For the domestic establishment, there is no better race. Now that's just a fascinating primary source. Everything from the guide to what to look for in a slave soldier to the crazy racist beliefs. Now, as we have discussed in the narrative, the benefits of the slave soldier was really to provide the state with more reliable troops. The slave soldiers, theoretically, had loyalty to no one but their master. They were not like the wild Turkmen, who were completely uncontrollable and kind of just did whatever they wanted. There's a sort of funny incident related in the history of Husseini that really demonstrates the extent to which the mamelukes were really chattel property, completely belonging to the person who hired them and bought them, and not the state or some broader institution. Husseini relates an incident where a mameluk emir, so not even a common soldier but a commander, who belonged to Melik Shah stole a watermelon from a fruit seller. When Melik Shah uncovered this, he gave the emir to the watermelon seller as restitution. The watermelon seller thereupon sold the Mameluke Emir to someone else for 300 dinars. Now, Husseini includes this anecdote primarily for purposes of showing what a great guy Melik Shah was. But from our perspective, the most interesting parts of the story are really the market price for a seasoned Turkish Mameluke, which was quite high, and the fact that the society's view of the slave soldier was that the master's ownership of him as personal property was so absolute that even a commander, an emir, could be given away to a watermelon seller like you would transfer ownership of a horse or a donkey or whatever. But as I said when we discussed the Abbasid slave army, it's not really clear how the Turkish slave soldiers themselves conceptualized their bondage. They likely saw all of this as a form of loyalty to the person of their lord, i.e., in the terms of the steppe worlds that they came from. They probably had very limited understanding of the legal system that saw them as personal property. And even when manumitted, they would often remain in service to their master without any real indication that the relationship materially changed. Indeed, the sources themselves do not overly dwell on manumitted versus enslaved soldiers and are often quite muddy on the issue. And it doesn't seem like manumitted and enslaved soldiers acted differently from each other which leads most scholars to think that the Turks themselves were not overly preoccupied with whether they were technically considered free or enslaved. However, not all Mameluks were Turks. Other so-called martial peoples would be recruited or enslaved as well, usually mountain peoples seen as particularly warlike. Dalyamites from the mountains of northern Iran bordering the Caspian Sea, Georgians from the mountains of the Caucasus, And Kurds from the Zagros Mountains and the mountains of eastern Anatolia. Additionally, small numbers of Ethiopians, Greeks, and even Indians could be found among the armies of the Seljuks. Indeed, Nizam ul Mulk advises in his Siyaset Name that sultans should not recruit only Turkish slave soldiers, they should recruit other peoples as a way to balance Turkish power. Something that the Abbasids had done centuries earlier, if you'll recall from our earlier episodes. Nizam-ul-Mulk writes, If every soldier is from the same race, it will give birth to great errors. It is necessary that 2,000 Dalimites and Khorasanis continue to be found in the palace and that they know who belongs to the palace and take necessary actions. He continues, There are ikta holders among the Dalimites, mountain people, the peoples of Tabaristan, the shepherds, and those resembling them. Because of this, From them, 500 people can stay in the palace and there will be no need for men who know nothing of the ways of the palace. That is to say, no need to rely on Turks as palace guards. But these non-Turkish troops were always far, far outnumbered by the Turks. And indeed, the ethnic solidarity of the Turks that Nizam Unmuk so feared does pop up occasionally. Sipt ibn al-Jawzi relates that during the siege of Jerusalem by Atsuz in 1073, one of the Fatimid mameluks tried to switch sides, saying to his fellow Turks on the other side, I am one of you. I resisted only out of obedience to my master. There is an even more illuminating instance in later Seljuk history when in a conflict between the Caliph and the Sultan, it is reported by the historian Bundari that the Caliph's Turkish mameluk slaves abandoned him because each race inclined to its like, and the Turks inclined to the Turks. So this fear by Nizam-ul-Mulk of Turkish solidarity was probably very well founded. But ultimately, despite his efforts to balance their power, there was really no alternative to the Turkish military and the military remained an essentially Turkish preserve. Now the Mamelukes were paid in basically the same way that every Turkish slave army has been paid since the anarchy at Samarra: Cash salaries for the lower ranks, iktafifs of varying sizes for the officer class. But of course, this naturally flowed into the issues that we discussed last episode, and indeed during the narrative, the increasing power of the emirs. Because many of the most powerful emirs, the emirs who ultimately came to doom the empire, came from Turkish Mameluk And indeed, we should never, never forget that for all of the references to the Mamelukes and the sources, the tribes remained. Always, they existed alongside the Turkish slave soldiers. And indeed, in far larger numbers. See, as we've discussed, the authors whose writings come down to us always play down the Turkish tribal component of the state. We know very little about the tribes from their writings. And though it might seem paradoxical, this means that they play up the Turkish slave army. Turkish Mamluks were part of the Perso Islamic civilization going all the way back to the Abbasids. Indeed, that's part of why al barslan and Melik Shah recruited them in large numbers to conform Seljuk practice to the existing precedent. But the tribes were not part of this story, they weren't part of this tradition, and thus they are mentioned less in the sources than the more familiar Turkish slave soldiers. But it is clear that whatever the number of Turkish Mameluks serving in the Seljuk armies, they were vastly, vastly outnumbered by the numbers of nomadic Turkmen, wandering the steppes and the deserts of the empire, out of sight of the authors scribbling away in their fine palaces. And large armies raised by the Seljuk sultans seem to have been mostly composed of the tribes, but supplemented with Mameluke contingents. It's hard to tell from the sources, but based on some oblique references, it seems that the Turkish Mamelukes would often serve both in the bodyguard of the sultan, wherever else was commanding the army, and in key positions in the lines. There are also references in some battles to one wing being led by a Mamluk emir and one wing being led by a Turkish bey, indicating that at least some of the times, each wing was composed of Mamluks and Turkmen tribes respectively. Now all of this is intimately connected to what we discussed last time, the structures of the Seljuk state. Most importantly, it is deeply tied into the decentralized and multipolar nature of the empire. The central state did not have, or even really aspire to, a monopolization on the legitimate use of force. This meant that everyone from Turkmen beys and the subject Seljuk princes and other vassals, to powerful emirs and even powerful bureaucrats, could and did raise their own armies. And aside from the Turkmen chieftains, who had access to the unlimited number of Turkish tribesmen, this usually meant raising a force of Turkish Mamelukes. Some sources mention that Nizam-ul-Mulk personally owned 40,000 Turkish mamelukes, and Sipt ibn al-Jawzi and ibn al-Athir say that Terkan Khatun personally owned and commanded 10,000 Turkish mamelukes. The historian ACS Peacock, on whose work I am heavily relying on for this episode by the way, estimates that a figure in the low thousands would have been a reasonably large contingent. Now this raising of a personal army of slave soldiers could happen in different ways. The bureaucrats and officials, for example, would simply hire the Mameluke slaves in the pattern we've seen pop up earlier in the podcast. These troops would then be loyal to that bureaucrat or official. Indeed, this was the key advantage of the slave soldier. They didn't owe loyalty to some abstract idea of the state or to a political ideology. They were loyal servants of their master. Except, of course, as we have seen over and over again, oftentimes the slave soldiers would come to realize that their masters were replaceable and they could just be loyal to themselves. And indeed, we do see that corps of slave soldiers would often develop an esprit de corps and an identity themselves. For example, the Nizamiya troops that started out as the personal troops of Nizam-ul-Mulk and then stuck together after his death to advance their own interests. As always, raising a Turkish slave army could be a very dangerous proposition. You never really know when the slave army you're paying for might decide that the time has come for them to be the masters. Separate from the armies of Turkish mamelukes raised by the bureaucrats or other prominent figures of the central state, there were the armies of the emirs themselves. And these were a far more mixed bag. Partially, This is due to the wide usage of the term emir in the primary sources and the diversity among the emirs themselves. The term was widely used in the Seljuk Empire and was simultaneously used to denote very different sorts of people. See, some emirs were in essence traditional Turkish tribal chieftains who would have been referred to as emir in Arabic or Persian, but themselves would have used the Turkish title bey. These were the classic nomad rulers we've discussed at length people like the leaders of the Nawakia, and they would have had access not to large numbers of Turkish slave soldiers, but to the raw and wild Turkmen tribes. But what we really mean by emir, as I use the term in the narrative, is less the traditional Turkish aristocracy and the chieftains of the tribes, and more the new breed of Seljuk military commanders. Military commanders raised up by the Seljuk state itself, but who then of course came to be incredibly destabilizing to the state. Now, as we briefly discussed last time, even among this type of emir, there were distinctions. Some emirs served the sultanate court, overseeing the central military establishment. For example, there was an emir responsible for the sultan's stables, the Emir Akhur. Some were wandering emirs, traversing the vast empire, and joining up with other Seljuk courts or vassals. And some were in essence landed gentry, men compensated through Iqtah fiefs to fight. One of the most interesting functions that could be performed by an emir was to serve as an Atabey, a title not found prior to the coming of the Seljuks. An Atabey was in essence an emir appointed to train a Seljuk prince. In a practice that is going to continue into the Ottoman era, young Seljuk princes would in essence be set up as nominal rulers of a province and given an ikta. and in order both to teach them military arts and proper governance, an emir would be sent to oversee their education. This made that particular emir immensely powerful. Berke for example was trained by the Turkish mamluk Gumushtegin and as we discussed when Berke eventually came to power he was of course dominated by the emirs generally but Gumushtagin had a special power due to his role as atabey. It is said of Gumushtegin that his orders were carried and his authority was so extensive it was as if he was the sultan. Now as i said earlier The emirs could be of almost any background. Indeed, many were likely the pre-Seljuk military elites simply slotted into the new political system. For example, we have a bunch of references to Arab emirs in Iraq, such as the Emir Ibrahim who we briefly mentioned in episode 31, and to Persian and Kurdish emirs. But a large number of these new emirs were in fact Turks, often Turkish slave soldiers raised up to the status of emir. And though they were Turkish, they were not like the traditional Turkish aristocracy, because their power came not from the traditional tribal society and the ability to summon and command the nomads, but from their relationship to the state and the Mamaluk armies. Unfortunately, none of these emirs really left us any written sources, so it's very difficult for us to know what the culture of the emirs was really like. But there is some indication that these Turkish emirs do seem to have kept the culture of the steppe world they came from, further contributing to the overtly Turkish character of the army. Archaeologists exhuming the tomb of a Turkish emir in Iran from the Seljuk period found that he had been buried in clothes covered in silver ornamentation, as was common on the steppe and which was a violation of Islamic prohibitions of the time against men wearing precious metals. Buried with him was also a wine-drinking bowl with an inscription extolling drinking, again in line with steppe customs and in contravention of Islamic practices. And the sources do mention that emirs liked drinking, a great steppe pastime that was of course not looked upon with favour by Muslim historians. Most dramatically, one Turkish emir famously used the skull of an enemy, in this case a crusader, to fashion a drinking vessel. The Islamic historians were of course horrified by this, but it was a common steppe custom. The emir then also used the dead crusaders' hair as part of a tugh. Now a tugh is in essence a standard, a battle standard. It's a big stick on the top of which are hung horse tails and sometimes your enemy's scalps. It was a traditional Turkish symbol of sovereignty, one from the steppe world that was brought into the Middle East by the Seljuks. And that will go forward into the Ottoman era. Essentially, it functioned like a flag. Again, this was a steppe custom, not a traditional Islamic custom. And as the Seljuk period progressed, the emirs, of course, became more and more independent, eventually becoming the true masters of the state. Sitting in their ikta fiefs or wandering the lands of the empire, they would eventually come to essentially supplant the Seljuk dynasty in real terms. Though crucially, They would always keep a Seljuk prince around as a nominal master. This is indeed a pattern we've seen before, from the Abbasid Puppet Caliphs to the Samanid Puppet Emirs. And all of this was of course connected to the deeply fragmented nature of the Seljuk political system. Now, as for the manner of warfare, Seljuk armies basically fought in the traditional steppe way. That is, they were lightly armored, mounted horse archers. Unlike European knights or the traditional Persian Sipahis or the Byzantine Tagmata cavalry, they were not heavy cavalry. Do not picture them in heavy armor and chainmail with massive lances. They were mobile light cavalry who specialized in archery, mostly clad in leather and perhaps light mail and who carried bows, arrows, perhaps a small shield and a relatively short sword. On campaign, Each man would usually bring at least three horses, according to most sources, enabling them to change mounts as they tired. And of course, the step riders were the ultimate masters of horse archery. They could shoot while mounted and riding, even at a full gallop, and were exceptionally accurate and deadly. They were also masters of hit-and-run attacks, riding in, unleashing a flurry of arrows, and then escaping. Always, steppe warriors would attempt to strike from a distance and avoid hand-to-hand combat. And they really were truly formidable archers, having been raised from birth with a bow and arrow. Michael Ataliyatis provides us with the following assessment of Turkish skill with the bow and arrow in an interesting passage from his history. The Byzantines, entrusted with the frontiers who opposed them, were beaten, for their adversaries were well acquainted with the bow, the mark not a little and terrified their opponents with wounds they inflicted from a distance. In order to capitalize on this great skill with the bow and their ability to fight while mounted, the Turks would usually be placed in a loose formation in small units. A classic formation was that of a crescent, with two wings swooping outwards towards the enemy on either side and a strong center. The small groups in this formation, however it was assembled, would then ride out to harass and harry the enemy, trying to either kill them from a distance or provoke them into a charge and then drawing them off into ambushes. Remember, the steppe nomads were of course famous for the feigned retreat, which we have seen deployed over and over again in the narrative to devastating effect. In his famous handbook on military fighting, the Strategikon, the Byzantine Emperor Maurice wrote the following. Instead of a large number of troops, some commanders draw up the smaller part of their army. When the charge is made and the lines clash, these soldiers turn quickly to flight. The enemy starts chasing them and becomes disordered. They ride past the place where the ambush is laid, and the units in ambush then charge out and strike the enemy in the rear. Those fleeing then turn around, and the enemy force is caught in the middle. The Scythian people do this all the time. In essence, the opponents of the Turks were faced with a generally impossible choice. If they stayed at a distance, then the vastly superior archery skills of the Turks would finish them off. Mounted Turkish horse archers would just be able to hit more of them than vice versa. But engaging the Turks in hand-to-hand combat where they might actually have an advantage would necessitate charging towards the Turkish lines which always risked the ambush and the feigned retreat. This made Turkish forces incredibly formidable and capable of defeating armies many times larger than them. In addition to being excellent all-around mounted archers, the Turks also excelled at the various tasks that we today would call light cavalry – skirmishing, scouting, patrolling and even cavalry charges. The Roman sources in particular imply that the Turks were masters of reconnaissance, a key responsibility of the light cavalry. Many Seljuk victories were won through knowledge of the terrain and effective intelligence gathering. And there are also references to Turkish heavy cavalry charges, though the traditional steppe nomads were usually lightly armoured and not really similar to a heavily armoured Persian or Arab Sapahi or a European knight. And crucially, All of this seems to be just as true for the Turkish Mamluk slave soldiers as for the tribesmen. Remember, the Turkish slave soldiers were born on the steppes. They were products of the steppe world who were then enslaved in their youth, mostly during their teens and early twenties. They would then be further trained in the barracks by their fellow slave soldiers, though unfortunately we don't have any real references to the nature of this training. They therefore knew how to fight in the steppe way but were themselves professionals, whereas the tribesmen were in essence both herdsmen and warriors. There are references in the sources to the Mamluks fighting in the Turkmen style, which should be taken to mean that they were mounted horse archers. But there are also references to Mamluks engaging in cavalry charges and even hand-to-hand combat, so I think we should imagine them as fairly versatile warriors, but warriors who excelled at horse archery as their primary occupation. Now, As the Seljuk period went on, there are references to other peoples fighting in the army. As previously discussed in this episode, there were mamelukes of other ethnicities who would not have been steppe riders necessarily, and we see references in the sources to Kurdish, Arab, and Persian troops as well. Various vassal emirs would of course provide their own non-Turkish troops. But while non-Turkish units certainly existed, They were far outnumbered by the Turkish bulk of the army, and the Turkish units retained a certain prestige. They were universally considered to be the superior troops. So superior that at various times the sultans would ban the caliphs from employing them in an effort to restrict their power. There's this great quote by Mahmoud Kashgari that I just love that really shows how people saw the Turks at the time. He wrote God said, I have a host whom I have called the Turks, and whom I have set in the East, when I am wrathful with any people, I will make them the sovereign over them. And so, unsurprisingly, Turkish steppe warfare remained central to the Seljuk armies, even when the horse archers might be augmented with other troops. And even then, the best of these non-Turkish units were still cavalry. There are references to both Arab and Persian cavalry units but they weren't steppe cavalry, the vaunted horse archers. Likely, they were primarily heavy cavalry, and would have been used in heavy cavalry charges as a complement to the fantastic steppe light cavalry. And this combination of Turkish steppe rider and classic Perso-Islamic heavy cavalry could in fact be truly devastating. Especially if an army began to waver under the withering Turkish arrow fire, and could then be broken by a mighty heavy cavalry charge. Now, there were also non-Turkish infantry units as well. We see references to Armenian militia serving the Seljuks. But it does not seem that meaningful numbers of infantry took part in large field battles or on campaign. The great Seljuk armies appear to have been essentially entirely mounted. Instead, infantry troops seem to have been stationed in cities, where small local militia forces called Ayar or Atad were usually responsible for upholding general order and security. But these small militia forces would likely have been part-timers taking part in local civil government who wouldn't have wanted to leave their cities and in any event would have been basically useless against the fearsome step riders. This was deeply connected to the strict division in classic Perso-Islamic political theory between the subjects of the sultan, termed the raya, and the soldiers, the askar. Indeed, this is a concept that will continue into the Ottoman period, and the term raya in fact is related to the Arabic term for flock or herd, which sort of shows how the Seljuks saw the common people – as in essence, a part of their herds. Not all that dissimilar, From the grazing mammals that constituted their traditional form of wealth. The raya, the common people, were not only not subject to conscription, they weren't even eligible to serve in the armies. I mean, that would have been like conscripting a sheep or something. The work of fighting was confined to the professional soldiers and the tribes. Therefore, there really were not large numbers of infantry troops which would have been drawn from the peasantry. Such people were not even allowed to fight. And indeed, the relationship between the armies and the common people, between the Asker and the Raya, could be pretty brutal. What we today would call war crimes were incredibly common. Rape, murder, confiscation, enslavement, all happened with regularity. And the Islamic histories are full of incidents of violence between the Seljuk armies and the common people. Indeed, We have covered them extensively in the narrative. Remember how casually Ibn al-Athir referred to the atrocities committed during the fall of Hamadan? He wrote, The town fell to an assault, and the Oghus plundered the populace and perpetrated some atrocities. Or how Ibn al-Athir described the fall of Khuzestan to Tukhrul, how the Turks indulged in plunder, pillage, and extortion so that the inhabitants experienced distress and violence at their hands. And that's just within the lands of the empire. The experience of Roman or Armenian civilians at the hands of the Seljuk armies could be in order of magnitude worse. Remember how Michael Ataliates described the fall of Ani that I quoted in episode 26? He wrote, The enemy realized what they were about to do and charged the gates all at once, shouting their war cries loudly. Aggressively destroying the gates and parts of the walls, they took the city by storm, and the slaughter of those inside was beyond telling for no mercy was shown on account of age, sex, or creed. All were killed, from the young and up, and a river of blood flowed through this pitiable and unhappy city. Indeed, so terrible could the treatment of the common people be at the hands of the armies that even the rumor of the approach of an army could cause mass panic. A certain religious official living in Baghdad during the Seljuk period, a man named Ibn al-Banna, Recorded the following in his journal in the days leading up to Alp Arslan's approach towards Baghdad: An announcement was made on the west bank of the city to the effect that whoever owns a shop and other property which may be plundered should move it and keep himself in a state of preparation, on account of what has been rumored concerning the approach of the Sultan Alp Arslan, for he has armies with him whose quartering and residences cannot be trusted. Upon hearing the announcement, the people became greatly disturbed and I think that this is quite telling. Even the approach of the sultan would terrify the common people, who likely just wanted to be left alone. Indeed, the whole world of tribes and emirs and caliphs and sultans was probably something that barely concerned them, that just didn't touch on their lives at all, except to make them worse. It showed up only in the form of tax collectors and officials and an emir demanding money from what he claimed to be his iktafif, or a bunch of savage tribes rolling up to just graze their herds everywhere. And I am sure that the common people prayed to God that these armies of Turkish savages would just stay away from their cities. But that said, there do seem to be some exceptions to this overall picture of violence and exploitation. As we will discuss when we resume the narrative, In Anatolia, it does seem that the local people basically surrendered their cities to the Turks without that much fighting and even came to appreciate the security that the Turkish military men could provide for a price. And we do see evidence in the sources of merchants following the armies on campaign, seeing the wars by the Turkmen as a good way to make money, both through selling provisions and then buying the slaves captured in conquest. But we shouldn't paint too rosy of a picture here. In general, in the eyes of the settled peasantry and the common people of the cities, the Seljuk armies were a basically alien force of Turks, with whom the common people hoped to have as little to do as possible. And indeed, there is a lot of indication that the Seljuk period was in general a period of increasing violence. The archaeological record shows a massive expansion of fortifications. Castles, fortresses, city walls, and citadels were repaired, expanded, and even built from scratch. In particular, urban citadel construction in Iraq and Syria seems to have dramatically expanded, perhaps based on Central Asian models brought west with the Seljuks. One archaeologist has estimated that over 100 citadels were built during the Seljuk period, only a fraction of which were constructed due to wars with the Crusaders in the later Seljuk period. Most modern historians, Though, with a few exceptions, believe that the Seljuk period is really associated with the militarization of state and society in the Muslim world, and that the expansion of fortifications we see in the Islamic world is in fact indicative of this. As we have said, the Seljuk armies were separated from the population by language and culture and even by military status – the soldier as a distinct category of person. And as we discussed last time, under the Seljuk Empire, Both the emirs and the tribes became incredibly politically powerful, really, in a way that they hadn't been before. So this period saw the rise of a real military elite in the Muslim world, and in such a decentralized political system built on Turkish lines, with multiple centers of power, war was common. The soldier class, epitomized by the emirs, thus imposed themselves on the common people in an era of sort of general violence. And this led to a sort of fortress mentality by the emirs and their troops. Coupled with their ethnic differences from the raya, it made the largely Turkish soldier caste a people apart. However, at the same time, there certainly are some qualifications here. For example, in locations dominated by the tribes and possessing great pasturage, we also see the simultaneous destruction of fortifications. The nomads likely felt that the presence of armed fortresses constrained their ability to control the pasturages, and thus the Seljuks demolished them. Indeed, as discussed in the last episode, the Seljuk sultans and the emirs would often travel with their armies in mobile courts, the muasker, the place of the soldiers, and they would often camp outside the walls of the cities instead of inside them, which means that the Seljuk armies actually used fortresses in an ad hoc and impermanent way. Not continuously. Therefore, the idea of foreign Turkish soldiers ruling from citadels over a sullen population of subjects is probably not entirely accurate. Indeed, the most alien Turks, the raw steppe nomads, likely mostly stayed pretty far away from the cities of the Muslim world. Instead, keeping to the steppes and grasslands of the Hamadan Terai axis in Iran, the mountain pasturages of the Caucasus of Azerbaijan, the plains of Syria, and of course Anatolia. So while I think it is true that the Seljuk Empire saw a marked increase in militarization of the state and indeed of society, and was certainly an era of great violence and upheaval, I am persuaded by the work of historians like ACS Peacock and Durand Getty that this somewhat overstates the case. And in any event, the nature of Seljuk rule and the nature of the Seljuk military means that we can't lay all of this fortress building at the feet of the Seljuks. And perhaps more importantly, the idea of a state ruled from castles and keeps really doesn't seem to be accurate. If anything, this was a state primarily ruled on horseback. So that wraps up our discussion of the Seljuk military. And next time, we will turn to an area that I have woefully neglected so far, but one that is absolutely critical to understanding the Seljuk Empire, the economy.